Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Megan. Welcome back to the studio, Megan. Oh my God, it's so good to be back. <laughs> it's so good to have you in front of me yep, again. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, thank you for all the well wishes and prayers. We have the best fans ever. We and do. lots of people reached out and sent me private messages and they're amazing and I'm fine. I was bumps and bruises and worried about some broken things, but um, in terms of lasting injuries, it's like, you know, a little bit of nerve damage, like sciatica mm-hmm. and bruises and weird stuff on my like wrist that we can't figure out but whatever I mean but uh, at this point I'm like in my mid to late 40s and I'm gonna hurt in the morning anyway (laughs) so what's one more right yeah yeah I love that approach I do want to tell you though that um I have to go check our P.O. box because I do know that some Patreons sent you some goodies. Oh my I gosh. just have not had a chance to get down to the P.O. box. Okay. And then also um, immediately our Australian kangaroo sack, Jason. I'm holding his sack right now. You sure are. <laughs> um, I'm always nice to it. Don't worry. We're weirdly bonded to someone we've never met, by the we way. We are super bonded. <laughs> So um, he wrote right away and he wanted to gather the gaggle of Patreons and see about sending you flowers and all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, here's the problem. I can't make a post because you're an admin without you seeing Seeing it. it. So I wanted you to know his intention. And today I will let him know that um, today we have a full day of recording ahead of us. I'm really excited about it. And we are going to be um, ordering in lunch. And I am, I'm just going to say this was on, this lunch is on the Patreons. Okay. Glad that you are happy and well, we're going to. So yes, I, I am um, really, really happy. Of course, that goes without saying that you're okay. But I just wanted you to know that the intentions and what people offered and wanted to do for you, it just speaks to the type of people that we draw to this podcast. We have There's great people. Oh my gosh. Good souls. Such good big hearts. Yes. Even some of you that do stupid shit. We love you. <laughs> we love you anyway. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's shake. Yep, I'm going to shake, shake while I'm holding the shake here. Shake the gree gree. So I was able to spend some time while I was laying there doing nothing, <laughs> uh, finishing up uh, my research, and I'm going to present a case that has been requested many times. I can't even name all of the people who've requested it. Oh, um, I did send a message to one and said, hey, do you want me to use your name? But at this point, because so many have requested it, I'm just going to leave it alone. And I'm not going to tell you it right away because I first want to give you a, a description of the scene that we're walking into. So if you don't mind, I'm ready to get started. I'm so ready. All right. So on a Saturday morning, uh, January 11th of 1992, so we're in the 90s, we're in the in the grunge days, right? Mm. Little Stone Temple Pilots, little Smashing Pumpkins. Good days. In a smaller town called um, Cannon, Indiana, 
Adon and Ralph Foley, who are brothers, they go quail hunting in nearby Jefferson County where they spotted a strange object in a soybean field near Lemon Road. And just how wholesome and normal is this? We live in a small community. People go pheasant hunting and quail hunting. So they're out hunting quail, and they see this thing. Ralph's first thought was that the object, it did look like a body. But when you see things like that, your mind really wants to make up other possibilities because you don't want to believe that you're looking at a body. Of course. right? I would find many things, like, is there a cow laying down? What is this in the field? So he points it out to his brother, uh, Don, and they go to get a closer look. And I know this sounds crass, but he literally thinks at first that it might be a rubber blow-up doll that somebody has thrown into the field and burned. Oh, God. But when he gets closer, it becomes very, very apparent that this is not a doll that they're looking at, and this is absolutely a human body. So I'm going to start you right off here again. Trigger alert. Yeah. So the body appears to be a female because what they could see, there was panties. They could see some panties that this body was wearing. Other than the panties, though, the body was naked and extensively burned from the waist up, like beyond recognition. The legs of the victim were spread as if they'd been posed and the arms were stretched skyward with clenched fists. Mm. As I mentioned the panties before, the victim appeared to be a young woman, but her chest had been burned so badly that it was really difficult to tell. Sure. I mean, back in the early 90s, it was likely if there were female panties, it was a female wearing them. We don't judge what people do now, but That's they're right. thinking female panties, it's a female. Yep. Okay. More, the most horrifying thing was just how her, her general appearance looked in terms of, and it's her face, you guys. Again, tr- huge trigger alert. The eyes were empty, without color. The mouth is wide open, exposing teeth tightly clenched on the victim's tongue or what was less, less, left of it. And the scene is just extremely graphic, traumatizing, and frankly, brutal. Mm-hmm. So at 10.55 a.m., a chief deputy, Randy Spry, receives a call from the Foley brothers. Spry was from the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office in Madison, and he headed out to Lemon Road to investigate this report. There had not been a murder in Jefferson County in over three years. So this is so similar to our county and probably many of you listeners where you get a murder, you get something like this where there's a body found and it is big news. So he's skeptical of the Foley brothers report at first. Like, there's no way I'm going to get out here and actually see that this is a dead body. Is it a prank? What is it? Well, when he arrives at the scene, he is horrified and immediately requests that the sheriff, uh, Richard Buck Shipley, uh, come out to the scene. And when Sheriff Shipley arrives, he is also appalled. And he obviously certainly seen dead bodies, but not one in this horrific of shape. He knew, thank God, that this was beyond the scope of the sheriff's office, and he called in the Indiana State Police for assistance. So I immediately like the sheriff because he gets to the scene, sees how awful it is, and says, Yeah, I I need need help. I need an expert, right? Yeah. Indiana State Police Detective Steve Henry and forensic expert Sergeant Curtis Wells arrives at the crime scene just after 1 p.m. So we're a few hours out from discovery. And he records the crime scene as you would expect an evidence tech uh, to do, an expert on these forensics. He does castings of tire tracks and footprints. He also looks over the body. And it's apparent from his training and experience that a flammable substance had been used to destroy physical evidence. So he knows Mm. that there's been an accelerant used in this case to attempt to destroy this body. Uh, That's how this burning has occurred. So here's another trigger alert. Um, He also examined, at least as well as he could in the field, the victim's genital area. 
And he noted that the panties had been pulled to one side and that the condition of this body, um, clearly female at this point, indicated some type of anal molestation either prior or immediately after death. So Detective Henry discovers a melted plastic bottle containing trace amounts of gasoline Mm. that are laying in the weeds nearby. So now we found the accelerant. Just really, really good investigative work being done here. And when the coroner arrives on the scene, uh, Wells collects hair samples from the victim and removes a ring from one of her fingers. Examining the ring uh, free from the victim's hands, he discovers that it's a Jefferson High School class ring. Mm. So this is going to start to sound familiar. There's this fantastic book on this case, um, which I will give credit to now, called Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. And she notes in the book that the initial feeling among the investigators at this point is that the killing was the result of some type of a bungled drug deal. But they could not understand why the body had been left in plain sight if it was. Mm -hmm. Because if the killer or killers had simply carried the body another 20 yards into the brush, it would maybe potentially not have been discovered for years. Wow. So the most plausible explanation was that whoever committed the murder had assumed the body would be rendered unidentifiable by the fire. Mm -hmm. And that's all either a direct quote or taken from uh, Aphrodite Jones's opinion in, in this book. A doctor, George Nichols, would eventually perform the autopsy on the woman found and found shocking injuries that would later corroborate the events and confessions that come out in the story that I am about to tell. Here's your major trigger alert. I'm going to give you the injuries. Ligature marks were found around her wrists, so she'd been bound. She had several lacerations to her head, neck, and legs. Her fingers were in such distorted condition that they had to be cut off in order to take prints. Her jaw was also removed so that the dentist could make a positive identification of her. The upper part of the body was covered in third and fourth degree burns and her tongue was protruding through clenched teeth. Lacerations to trigger alert. Uh, the anus and rectum indicated that a blunt, blunt object had been inserted at least three and a half inches. In addition, the extent of the rectal bleeding showed that she had been alive at the time of the assault. Yeah. Most revealing of all was the discovery of soot in the upper airway because this indicated that she had been alive when she she had been set on on fire. fire. Mm -hmm. So you know what this is. If those of you out there um, have not figured it out yet, this is the tragically devastating case of Shanda Renee Scherer. Um, Shanda's murder has been extensively covered, written about, created national news and media storm because of just the circumstances surrounding this, both that brutality and because of who the perpetrators yes. are and what the motives were. Yes. So I'm going to give credit now to my sources um, just so that I don't forget because there are so many of them. Um, the book, as I indicated, Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones, which I will admit that I didn't read all of, but pertinent parts. My very favorite resource in this case is actually um, on crimelibrary.org. And it's a it's a long piece by David Lohr, L-O-H-R, called Death of Innocence, The Murder of Young Shanda Share. David does great work. I've used him for references too. He does for Crime Library because Mm -hmm. he really gets in. I trust his work. Yes. And I still fact checked it, but a lot of what I'm going to get into, especially later here, is is directly his research, and I want to give him credit for it because he did so well. He does a great job. Other than my citing and fact checking him, he's, he's amazing. 
So um, Dr. Phil, because I don't know if you've ever seen any of his episodes, but they are fantastic on this particular case. His That series that he did on this is called In Cold Blood, A Daughter's Brutal Murder. And there are very graphic interviews with the victim's family and also with some of the, um, well, at least one of the perpetrators of the murder, as well as Amanda Hevron, who I'll speak about in a moment, who wasn't ever convicted of anything, but the victim's family is very adamant that she played a part in this. Yes. And then also um, Deadly Women Season 2, Episode 1 on Discovery Channel. And the last one was Mean Girls from Midwest Crime Files, which you can find online as well. Okay. So there's there's the credit that's due. Um, let's talk about who Shanda was. Yeah. All right. Let's. Anybody who looks her up, and most of you may know her, she was so pretty. Mm-hmm. She's this adorable little gal. Um, she was born in Pineville Community Hospital in Pineville, Kentucky, on June 6th of 1979. It's one of those things that hits home. I'm like, she is two years younger than me. Yep. Uh, to Stephen Scherer and his wife, Jacqueline, often called Jackie throughout the case, um, who was later known as Jacqueline Vaught, um, or Vote after she divorced and remarried. Um, Vaught is what I believe it to be, but I've heard it pronounced two or three different ways on other podcasts I've listened to. Um, after the divorce, Shanda moved with her mother and her new stepfather to Louisville. So they moved to Kentucky. There she attended fifth and sixth grades at St. Paul's School. But she, and Shanda was a cheerleader. There's so many pictures of her online mm-hmm. where she's dressed in her cheer uniform. She also played volleyball and softball. So she, she's this athletic little normal, normal all-American Midwestern teenager. Barely teenager, actually. Yeah. Now she's 12. But when her mom gets divorced again, um, they move in June of 1991 to New Albany, Indiana. She is well-adjusted. She's a normal, typical middle schooler. Um, At this point, when she moves with her mom to New Albany, Indiana, it's actually to be closer to her father. So the parents, even though their exes, get along well enough that when mom's new marriage ends, they move back closer so she can be close to both parents. Yeah. She enrolls then, uh, or her daughter um, is enrolled in Hazelwood Middle School. And then in a few minutes, I'll explain why. But early in the school year, she does leave Hazelwood Middle School and transfers to Our Lady of Perpetual Help School, which is a Catholic school in New Albany. And there she also joins, um, she's cheer and joins the girls' basketball team. So a few days after starting school, jumping right into it. So she's at Hazelwood Middle School. Um, she's She's the new girl. She gets in a fight with a girl at school named Amanda Heverin. So imagine you're 12, you're new at this middle school, and your first few days there, this girl who's older than you picks a fight with you because Amanda's 14 and Shanda's 12. There's a two-year age difference. Okay. So you know how middle schools work. She's probably yeah. in what, like sixth grade, and Amanda's in like eighth or right. something like that right. uh, is how the ages seem to work for mm-hmm. me. Well, this fight lands both girls in detention. And as often happens in detention, in, in my experience, you kind of get to know the people that you're in detention with. Sure. You know, just to be fair, I was only ever in, in detention for talking too much and then perhaps sarcastically answering when they asked me if it was possible for me to stop. And I said, no. No. <laughs> so there was a couple of times. Okay. Well, they get to know each other. Sure. And then they decide that they actually like each other and enjoy each other's company and they become friends. Oh, wow. Okay. This is a more boy type of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So more male behavior is that you get in a fight and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, you're pretty cool. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're bros. Right. Girls, you would expect to maybe hold the grudge longer. Yeah. Well, these two didn't, but there are some interesting things that, that come up that we learn. So Shanda's mother 
is obviously immediately hesitant about the friendship since this 14-year-old girl, Amanda, had just punched her 12-year-old daughter a few days before. She's also older than Shanda and just doesn't, has that general feeling of discomfort that parents will get. And and she articulates That intuition. She just didn't like it. It felt bad. It felt yicky. Yep. Uh, Shanda assures her mom, Amanda's a good person. So they begin to hang out frequently, the, the best of friends. And then Amanda starts to write Shanda some notes. Now, passing notes, you know, were you old enough that this is the way of communicating, right? Before text messages, something teenage girls did frequently in the 1990s. I can't tell you how many notes I still have from friends and and stuff just like in a keepsake chest someplace. Yep. You would just pass notes in the hallway. You would. Or in class. Or throw them in class, Mm -hmm. exactly, and hope that the teacher didn't find them to read them. Yep. But the content of the notes, Charnel, wasn't exactly what you would have expected um, from these uh, young ladies. So Amanda asks Shanda if she likes girls. Okay. And she compliments her, compliments her appearance, her clothes, tells her she's very pretty. She's, she's flirting with her. Yeah. And at that point, Shanda is receptive to this and decides that she likes this as well. And they actually begin to have a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. They even went to the fall school dance together. Okay. So we're in the early 90s here, and they've decided that they're out Mm -hmm. and that they're going to go to this dance together. Okay. So at the dance, this is just where things go horribly wrong. If you're going to have a catalyst in a case, I feel like this is the catalyst. Shanna meets 16-year-old Melinda Loveless. Mm -hmm. So Shanna's 12, Amanda Heverin's 14, and they're dating, and Melinda Loveless is 16. Well, Melinda had been dating Amanda Heverin for about a year. Yeah. So she's even two years older. She's obviously a high school student. Yeah. I don't know how it was that she's at a middle school dance, but it just says fall school dance. So it could have been all the grades. Combined. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was in school, the middle school was actually seventh grade through 12. Oh. There wasn't its own middle school. Okay. We just had a high school. So maybe that's how it was. But Shanda, who's four years younger than than this Melinda Loveless... Melinda starts like screaming at her. She's treating this young 12-year-old girl terrible and she's enraged that Amanda is spending time with Shanda. She threatens Amanda and Shanda at the dance that night. Then she starts writing Amanda letters and she's expressing her hatred for Shanda and her unhappiness that Amanda has spent time with her. And this is all even though they broke up, but she's really sending all of this, um, these letters and, and being scary yeah. to, to this 12-year-old. Someone four years younger than her. Yeah, exactly. So a little bit of of background then. In 1990, so the year before, 14-year-old Loveless had began to date Amanda Heverin. So almost two years before because she's 16 at this point. And so Amanda would have been 12 at this point. Yeah, I was going to say. There's two, two and two. Yeah. So Amanda's 12. So after um, Loveless's, Melinda Loveless's father leaves the family and her mom remarries, she starts to behave erratically. So this loveless chick, she starts to get in fights at school. She reports being depressed, um, resulting in actually some professional counseling. Mm-hmm. And then in March of 1991, she officially comes out as a lesbian to her mother. And okay. her mom is initially mad, but eventually she's accepting. And then the relationship that Melinda and Amanda, which I think had been happening in secret for a while because she hadn't come out, sure. starts to significantly deteriorate. I mean, they're young adolescents anyway. Relationships don't last whatever, you know, orientation they are. Right. 
Well, even though they're broken up, Melinda Loveless immediately grows jealous of Amanda and anything she does or anybody that she's with or expresses interest in. There's just this obsessive behavior. And Shanda is the new love interest. And this is what culminates in the school dance confrontation. Mm -hmm. She just can't take it anymore and is just so pissed and wants Amanda back so badly that whoever she's with is going to be the target of her anger. Mm. Taking a drink real quick. (laughs) Have some coffee this Sunday morning. Yes, this Sunday morning. When uh, Melinda Loveless finds out that Amanda and Shanda also, they had attended a festival together in late October. This is when Melinda starts to make some really awful and scary statements and remember then that she's making these statements long prior to the events that we're going to lead discuss today that leads to yeah she starts to talk about killing shanda share wow and threatens her publicly at least on those two occasions on two occasions i believe so she's concerned she i'm sorry jackie is concerned about the threats these issues that are coming up with Shanda. Of course. And then she's also concerned that about her daughter's relationship with Amanda in general, because these threats aren't happening beforehand, right? They're all because she's dating this girl. Yes. And now this other, no offense, but crazy girl is coming after her 12 year old daughter, making these statements and, and being scary. So she decides to transfer her daughter out of this school and over to the Catholic school that I mentioned, Our Lady Mm -hmm. of Perpetual Hope, in late November. So Amanda Heverin has stated since, you know, jumping to more recent events, that she did give some of these letters that Melinda was sending where she was making death threats, where she was threatening to hurt or kill Shanda Shearer. Um, She says she gave them to Two, there's two versions of this. One is that she gave them to her father and her father turned them over to some youth prosecutor. And the other is that she herself turned them over to a youth prosecutor, which I find hard to believe since she's 14 years of age. Yes, she would not know what a youth prosecutor or and, anything is. Well, maybe is really. depending on how much trouble she's been in, right? Well, well maybe, yes. right? That's, good. <laughs> Some kinds, That's a great point. Kids are savvy sometimes. They understand things like juvenile detention. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, around here, they call it the yo-ho, right? Yeah. The shortened yeah. version of youth home. But she says the youth prosecutor net, never did anything about it as far as she knew. Mm. So just, it gives you, it gives you a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to you about who Melinda Loveless is. And I want to preface this with, when I'm going through explaining the perpetrators and about them and even about some of the hard things they've been through. None of these, in my opinion, are mitigating or exculpatory. So I don't want it to sound that way. Mm-hmm. I just want you to have a full picture of what these girls were and mm-hmm. who they were and what they'd been through. So you know, the one yeah. part of this case that has always been interesting to me, her last name. And we can get to that, right? Loveless. Loveless. Here, let's explain. I'm going to explain to you who Melinda Loveless is. And, and that will resonate with our, fans and audience even more sometimes the way that you come into the world and the names and things that you're given are a preface in my opinion well when I was younger I had an orthodontist appointment down in Adrian and had my wisdom teeth moved from Dr. Fear and Dr. Pain yeah this is what I'm saying legit yep there are some some things you set your children up for there are synchronicities in the world all over Mm mm-hmm so Melinda was born in New Albany on October 28th of 1975 and is the youngest of three daughters to Marjorie and Larry Loveless. To know Melinda, you need to know her parents. 
So Larry was drafted into the Army during uh, Vietnam, and although he returned horribly emotionally scarred, he was actually treated as a hero upon his return. And as I've said before in other cases, with the Vietnam, that's, that's not always the case. Some of them were treated very poorly Absolutely. when they came home. His m- wife, Marjorie, described him as a sexual deviant okay. who would wear her and her daughter's underwear and makeup. He would constantly cheat on her, and he was fascinated with seeing her have sex with both men and women, but was also horribly jealous when she would do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is, I was going to say, if, or, at first, the wearing of undies, and you know, that doesn't make you deviant, but... No, she described you, it as deviant, right. because, again, in that time frame, that's not something that was, quote-unquote, normal sure, or sure. acceptable. Accepted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's... And, and just, you know... To each his own. But then when you get into the other things, When you it's couple like, it ooh, then with the um, infidelity, the request yes. or requirement that your wife be unfaithful and that you And then watch, you get jealous about it. And then you're jealous about yeah, it. Yeah, that is, that's not okay. So they did live in that same area in New Albany throughout Melinda's childhood. Larry worked irregularly, as it's described. So you know he's probably an on-again, off-again yeah, yeah. guy. Yeah. For the Southern Railway after his military service. Um, his profession allowed him to work whenever it was most convenient for him at that point. But interestingly, in 1965, he became a probation officer. Really? With the New Albany Police Department. Huh. He was fired eight months later when he and his partner assaulted an African-American man. Oh, God. Who Larry accused of sleeping with his wife. Oh, Lord have mercy. Which there is some evidence to lead us to that he did sleep with his wife at Larry's request. Yeah. And then he became jealous and assaulted him. Yep. In 1988, Larry also briefly worked as a mail carrier, but he quit after three months. And most of his the mail came home where he destroyed it. Oh, Jesus. So federal offense much? So he, he was carrying it to his home. He That's was. It. He didn't want to actually deliver the mail. Yeah. He just picked it up and took it home and burned it. Oh, my Lord. Mm-hmm. So Marjorie, um, Melinda's mom, had worked kind of on and off since 1974. When both parents were working, they were actually pretty well off financially. This is an upper middle class family living in an upper middle class suburb of an area called Floyd's Knob, Indiana. <laughs> I will, someday, let's get some background on how that name was given Floyd's to, Knob. to that town. <laughs> All right, like making <laughs> mental. I'm putting it in my notes we're, on my phone we're 12 right year now. Old boys, right now. Sorry, I just got to know the deets behind <laughs> right? that. Right. Well, it seems to fit because Larry's a classic knob. Um, he's <laughs> violent. He's abusive. And when he was making good income, he didn't even really share it with the family. He would impulsively, impulsively, that could be a hard word, spend any money that he earned on himself and bought firearms, motorcycles, and cars. He also filed for bankruptcy in 1980 because he was obviously so good with his money Um, and extended family members. And this is sad. They would state that when um, the girls, the three, his daughters would come and visit, they always seemed hungry and underfed, even though this is an upper middle class family financially. And they described the loveless marriage as loveless. Oh, interesting. Yes. Telling you synchronicities. It is. So the loveless parents here, they'd often visit bars in Louisville, where Larry would pretend to be a doctor or a dentist, and he would introduce Marjorie as his girlfriend. Hmm. He would also share her with some of his friends from work, as I, we indicated before with the um, uh, nice African-American man that he assaulted. And she later reported that she found all of this disgusting, like she didn't want to do these things. She was forced. Hmm. During an orgy that had occurred with another couple at their house, 
Marjorie actually tried to commit suicide. Oh, gosh. And unfortunately, she would attempt suicide several more times while her children were growing up. And mm-hmm. they knew this was happening. Yeah. They, they had found her. When Melinda was nine, this is awful. Larry had his wife, Marjorie, gang raped. Mm. And then she tried to drown herself after. Um, after that incident, she refused him sex for a month. And so his recourse then was to rape her while mm. their daughters were in a different room, but they heard everything. Oh, gosh. In the summer of 1986, Larry and Marjorie went to a bar and he wanted to take um, home two women that he had met there. And she told him no. So he ended up beating her so badly that she was hospitalized and he, he was finally convicted of a domestic battery. Oh, good. So the ex- the extent of his abuse on his daughters and his other children is a little bit unclear. <clears throat> Throughout this case, you're going to hear some things that I think people think are mitigating when it comes to Melinda. But I'm just going to give you what uh, has been claimed and testified to by some. So in some court testimonies, they claim that he actually um, fondled Melinda as an infant that he molested her 13-year-old sister uh, early in uh, Marjorie's 13-year-old sister early in their marriage. So there was some evidence oh, even okay. before there was any molestation alleged with his own children that he had molested um, would be his sister-in-law, sister-in-law. Yeah. young sister-in-law. He also allegedly molested the girl's cousin, Teddy, from ages 10 to 14. Okay. Both of his older girls said he molested them. Okay. But Melinda did not admit that it ever happened to her. Okay. And there is speculation that she's she's protected him and she's always protected him. Yeah. Both of the older girls reportedly um, reported that Melinda slept in bed with him mm. until he finally abandoned the family when she was 14. So this is right just two years prior to the events here that are going to occur with Shanda. Yeah. So again, I don't have any reason and when to she not started believe her sisters. Dating Amanda, essentially. Right. She starts dating Amanda at, at the same time. She comes okay. out. And again, I'm going to tell you some really interesting stuff about that too. So he's verbally abusive. We know this. Um, he fires a handgun at one point in time in the direction of Melinda's older sister, Michelle, when she was seven. Oh. And then he would embarrass the children. This is so gross, Charnel. By finding their underwear, and when other family members would be over, he'd sniff him. What the like fuck? he'd find their like pick up their dirty underwear and sniff their underwear. No. And so I love that this is classified as embarrassing as children. Why aren't people reporting this? Yeah, exactly. This is, I I don't I can't even track that logic of it being embar- like I'm. This is how I was I'm embarrassed. Embarrass you. That's not embarrassing. No. That's that's a whole different level. That is deviance. <laughs> Correct. Right so, there. So Marjorie's right. She right. Is. When she's describing Larry as Absolutely. this. Well, beginning when Melinda was five and for two years, so from her ages of five to seven, as often happens, her family decided they needed to make some changes to all of the sinning that was happening. And so they become deeply involved in the Graceland Baptist Church. You don't say. We don't say. Mm. Larry and Marjorie gave full confessions about everything that had been happen- happening. They renounced their drinking and quote unquote swinging. While mm. they were members, mm-hmm. although I have a hard time calling that swinging because I don't believe it was consensual. Right. And to me, a swinger is a consensual it, yes. sexual experience. Exactly. With, right. Yep. Don't, do not, you know, 
swingers out here everywhere are like, this is bullshit. Everybody consents when we have sex with each other's spouses. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) No judgment, guys. No judgment. If it's consent, do your thing. Yep. (laughs) That's always our caveat here. If Mm -hmm. it's consensual, then okay. Whatever works for you. This was not consensual at all. Oh, but I do love now they're saying, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, just because you said it verbally. Now you're saved. Everything's fine. Well, and you know, just to compound all this, Larry becomes a Baptist lay preacher. What the? Seriously? I don't think I ever knew that. Bad people find so much Jesus sometimes that they change their profession. (laughs) Too much Jesus. They become Jesus. They think they are Jesus. I don't want that to sound shitty to all of my my Christian friends out there, of which I am one, who are like, anybody can be reformed or whatever. I'm sure there was a moment here where Larry could have been reformed when he joined the church and started going. But people who are psychopaths... Mm -hmm take things to extreme yep. and use religion as the reason that they should be forgiven and then take off on this power trip. Yep. And that's and what Larry hide, does. They hide behind it. Mm-hmm. So he becomes a Baptist lay preacher. Marjorie became the school nurse. The church God, later. That's scary too. It is. I'm, I'm terrified. You've given me so much information that I never knew, by the way. Thank you already. Good. You know, half an hour in, but good gracious. Well, it gets worse. I just want you to know who Melinda is. Because so many things have been said about her, and and we're going to learn a lot more about her if you don't know it already. But I just think that this was, if of all of the perpetrators in this case, her background is the most interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And and something's beeping, turn out, might be my phone. Okay. I think it is. So the church then, so this isn't just Larry and Marjorie, this is the church which always causes me concern that the church in general is used as the terminology here. Mm. They arrange for Melinda, who is what, five, seven, maybe? It's between the ages of five and seven that this church thing is going on, to be taken to a motel room with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism. What? What? The child needed to be um, exorcised. No. Of her DNA because her two messed up parents? have No. Well, Larry then while he is a Baptist lay preacher, does one of the things that preachers do and he becomes a Christian marriage counselor with the church. Uh, And also, you're going to find this shocking, requires a reputation for being too forward with women that he's counseling. And he eventually tries to rape one of them. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I know. I mean, really? Look at your face right now. Yeah. So after that incident, um, they leave the church, most likely not of their own volition. You mean leave or were run out with, you know, pitchforks and never specifically says, but I feel Uh. like the church at this point, to give them the benefit of the doubt, went, I think we got buffaloed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I don't think these people changed. It's weird. They might not. Their baptism didn't take. So they return then to their um, former professions, which are drinking um, their former profession and, uh, and deviant sex okay and again i'm gonna put that blame based off of what i've read on larry because i still don't think that marjorie is as culpable for things in their marriage i get the impression she was a very weak abused woman mm-hmm. who couldn't get out of her situation and unfortunately made a martyr of her children because of it mm-hmm. which is what we do all the time in cps cases is try to tell women in dv cases you can stay if you want but you should not martyr your children. Yep. Because when you martyr your children and let them be exposed to this, that's that's when you need help and they need help. Yeah, and you've failed to protect. You have failed to protect. So in November of 1990, Marjorie catches Larry spying on Melinda and a friend. 
Okay. And she's creeped out enough by him spying. It doesn't say what he was doing when she caught him. But I think one can speculate when you end this with she attacks him with a knife. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So he was spying and probably masturbating. That's what my thought is Mm -hmm. um, to the point where she attacks him. And then he cuts himself trying to grab the knife and he ends up hospitalized. Her next suicide attempt causes her daughters to actually call the police. So I believe she attempts suicide after that event not knowing what to do. Yeah. I, I mean, she just caught her husband peeping on the daughter, the only one who doesn't state that she was sexually abused, but we know that the other two were, mm-hmm. which let's mm-hmm. just use evidence of how one child is treated right. as evidence of how all children are treated. That's been spelled. after the. That's a case, by the way. After the incident where she attempts, as Marjorie attempts suicide, Larry files for divorce and he moves to Avon Park, Florida. Melinda is crushed that her dad has left them okay and he eventually larry remarries and he sends letters to her for a while he plays on melinda's emotions and eventually he severs all contact with her um, and then ultimately as i will tell you some more about later larry ends up dying in december of 1998 so shame. melinda's had just a ton of trauma yes it is not it's it, such a shame yeah, she says such a shame so interestingly charnel Melinda and both of her older sisters all came out as lesbians as young teenagers. That doesn't surprise me even a little bit. Nope. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm I am not even going to get into you know were they biologically lesbians to begin with? Is right. this how they were made and created, or mm-hmm. were their conscious decisions made because of sexual abuse at a young age? I don't know. There's a lot of research out there about all of it, really. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to give you opinions on it because frankly, I don't care what their sexual orientation is. I'm just telling you that all. All Mm -hmm. three of those girls came out um, as as being homosexual as teenagers. So Melinda, and if you look up pictures of her as well, she's very pretty. Mm -hmm. She's a very pretty girl. In fact, uh, probably other than Shanda, she's probably the prettiest, the nicest looking of all of these other uh, girls that I'm going to mention, including Amanda Heverin, who Mm -hmm. was the girl that she had been dating. She had long curly brown hair, and some people described her as like a young Julia Roberts, which I can almost see Mm -hmm. just a little bit in terms of looking at her face. But she was very controlling and possessive of Amanda Heverin and their relationship and would become, as I indicated before, enraged anytime Amanda would talk to anybody else, any other female, but especially Shanda. And I think now we understand the nature versus nurture where, you know, that was very much observed her her entire life. And her father. The next statement was this would be expected from her traumatic childhood. Yeah. Right? But like Judge Megan said earlier, this does not. It's not mitigating. Mitigate her behavior. No. Mm-hmm. Never in terms of the crime. Where this stuff is important, I think, is in sentencing phases. Yeah. Uh, because you need to know about the beast that has been created and how it was made and how do you treat it yes is there a possibility that someone like this with everything they've been through and then done could function in society again and Mm -hmm. would it ever be safe for them to do so and those are the things i want you to keep in mind as we're going through Mm -hmm. this and the things that judges have to keep in mind when you're dealing with cases like this. We do and often receive my, you know, benchmates, as you'll see in this case and others receive extreme criticism because one person, one side is always going to leave court unhappy. Absolutely. Always. Yep. You exactly. cannot make everybody happy yep. in a case. Very it's like few. being a referee at a sporting event. It really is. Every call you make, you're pissing off half the people there at you least. You really are. Mm-hmm. You really are. And sometimes the parents are more vocal and they yell things and that's, yeah. where, that's where you are as a, a judge is really just a referee. Yeah. Right, right, right. So November of 1991 is when Shanda's mom finds the notes that Amanda and Shanda had been passing. Okay. And this makes it clear to her that the two were not just having a romantic uh, 
uh, lesbian relationship, but that it had turned physical. Oh. So imagine you found out not only is your daughter uh, gay, which I don't know that she has a problem with, by the way, but that they're having a physical relationship and she doesn't like it. Okay. Amanda's 14. Yeah. Her daughter's 12. Yeah. I can, I can see this. It doesn't, if that was a boy, she wouldn't be okay with it either. I believe, I believe that to be the case. There have been some statements made by Amanda Heverin in a later interview that she indicates that um, Shanda had been involved with boys much older than her. So she doesn't understand why Jackie would even care. Uh, but I don't know that that's been confirmed that Jackie didn't care because Jacqueline is very, very much a concerned mom when you watch these yeah. videos about any type of inappropriate sexuality that was occurring. Sure. She, I'll be honest with you, she calls Amanda Heverin a child molester. Yeah. Well, I mean, I get that. She's 12. Let's keep this into perspective yes. and from a mother's perspective. She's not even a teenager. She is 12. She's 12. But it, I have and to And she does you, respond appropriately by transferring her child. She does to try to get her this, away. Yes. I mean, she's yeah. done the things that as parents you do when you are being an appropriate protective parent. So she's 14. Her daughter's, Amanda's 14. Her daughter's 12. T- completely disapproves of the sexual Amanda's relationship. Amanda's 14. Her daughter's 12. Jackie's daughter is 12. Yes. You said that like Amanda's 14 and she has her 12 year old daughter. <laughs> That's okay. Shanda is 12. (laughs) The other thing that some people may not like, but I'm going to give it to you both ways. While um, Jackie is insistent that Amanda is molesting her daughter, Mm -hmm. Shanda. Amanda is insistent that this was a consensual mutual relationship. And I think it was. Mm -hmm. 12 year olds can't consent to sexual activity. But neither can 14-year-olds right now. Yes, this is child on child. It is. Mm -hmm. And we get these cases. And I will Mm -hmm. tell you that although victims and their family may not like to hear this, what would likely happen in a case like this, were this to have been reported, um, and I don't know if they did report this when they found out until after. I I do not know. And I'm not going to cast judgment on that and whether the report was made. Likely there would be no criminal conviction on a case for child molestation or sexual abuse because it is consenting children within four and a half years of age of each other. Right. Yes. And just so you know. Romeo and Juliet's what they call it, even though it kind of makes me sick because that that Shakespearean story did not end well. It it did not. (laughs) And neither does this one. Yes, exactly. Oh. And no, we are in the state of Michigan, at least. I don't know if this is nationwide, but child on child is not something that Child Protective Services involves it with. It goes right to law enforcement. It does. And law enforcement in these cases may file a juvenile petition against the quote unquote offender. But then Mm -hmm. often they submit on both parties. Yeah. Um, so I certainly have had cases where a younger person was considered to be the perpetrator on an older person as well. And these are juveniles. Right. I was going to say, cause they're both under 13 age. and 14 or yes. 13 and 15, anything under the age of consent. Yeah. So I just want to throw that out there. I am not defending Amanda Heverin at all. Um, because there are some things that come out here that make her highly suspect and unlikable in terms of the way that she behaves. Mm-hmm. Yep. In uh, I, oh, as I indicated then, um, she, not just does she, let's start that over. Jackie <laughs> finds these notes indicating that Amanda and Shanda are clearly having a sexual relationship. But to compound it, Shanda has also started failing in school. Mm. So Jackie demands that Shanda stop spending time with Amanda. Yeah. Yep. And of course, 
as your parents will do, you know, when you tell somebody they can't have something, <laughs> she keeps seeing Amanda. Of course. Right. This is what prompts the transfer to the private school in an effort to keep her away from Amanda. Mm-hmm. Finds out she has a sexual rela- sexual relationship, these letters, this fight that's occurred. Now there's threats being made against her daughter. It's yep. time to get her out of there. Again, acting appropriately. Yep. And I do, I actually want to go back to a statement that I made about how CPS does not um, investigate parents when it's child on child, when there is no information that the parents know about it and are allowing it to happen. So like in this particular case, this would be, this, this should have been. Could potentially have been a PS case. Well, no, she responded appropriately. Like she, you know, when she knew it was happening, when she learned about it, she transferred her child. She told her child that she couldn't have contact with her anymore. I mean, obviously that still happens, but you know, she, she reacted right. And the next one would have been law enforcement, you know, getting law enforcement. And that goes right with this quote from specifically Jackie. uh, And this was from, I indicated before the TV show, the uh, deadliest decade. Mm -hmm. She says, if she, her daughter, Shanda was a lesbian. So what? I don't care. The issue for me was that she had this older person pressuring her into doing things. Shanda was 12. She was a baby. Mm-hmm. And that's how mom feels. Yes. It, had she ev- even started menstruating yet? I don't. I mean, who knows? My God, she's, she's a baby. years old. She's a baby. Oh. So within a month of transferring schools, Shanda's doing much better at her new school. She's passing her classes. She tries out for cheerleading. Oh, yeah. Well, Amanda, she does not like that Shanda broke things off and she continues to write her notes and call her frequently. I, I think she was in love with her. She was a teenager, mm-hmm. 14 year old in, in love with and her. You know her how hard and fast teenage love hits, man. Yeah. Oof, it yeah. takes hold. But then, and this is what causes some concern in terms of validity of information. One statement is made, and I think potentially by Jackie, that Shanda's complaining to a friend that Amanda's continuing to pursue her, like she's ready to be done with the relationship. Okay. But when we get to the events of the evening they're going to happen, it gives you an idea otherwise that maybe she still wanted to see Amanda, and maybe she felt both ways. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe to her mother, she knew what her mom wanted to hear. Right. Right. And so she was making, and maybe those were, ha- were she's truths She's still calling hers. me. She's still contacting yes. yep, me. Yep, exactly. But then once she's actually with her, then she is, I mean, 12, that's such a tender age. I could see how they yep. just bounce back and forth because they don't really know. They don't right. have the development really to, and even if she didn't want to be there, how hard would it have been for her to say no? She That peer pressure is a real thing, especially at 12. Right. Yeah. So Amanda is still pursuing Shanda. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, Melinda is still pursuing Amanda yeah. and writing her notes. Mm. And her notes are still relatively graphic in that she's explaining to Amanda, I hate your girlfriend, I hate Shanda, and I want her to be dead. Yeah. I wish she was dead. Yeah, These are the things being placed in these letters. Mm-hmm. I need to introduce you now to um, the three other perpetrators in this case, at least the ones that were um, immediately culpable involved in this uh, okay. case. Lori Tackett. Um, who is often some referred to as Mary in these cases, but I'm going to refer to her as Lori because that's who she is. They, she starts to use the word, the name Mary um, later in the case and even perhaps now. And I don't like hiding behind your legal name when you've been Lori the whole time. So to me, she's Lori Tackett. Okay. Uh, Hope Rippy and Tony Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So about Lori Tackett, and she's a very concerning childhood as well, Charnel. Okay. Mary Lorene Tackett, known as Lori, 
was born in Madison, Indiana on October 5th, 1974. So Mary Lorene Laurie Tackett was born in Madison, Indiana on October 5th, 1974. Her mom is a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian. Here we are again. And her father was a factory worker with two felony convictions from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Not everybody that has an old felony is a bad person, no, Sharna. No. I know a few. Right. Her parents, though, especially her mother, were religious extremists. Um, and again, just because you're a Pentecostal Christian does not make you a bad person. But when no. I use the word fundamentalist and religious extremist, you should be worried. Yeah, yeah. Lori can remember that... Several times people from church would be praying over her as a child and trying to perform exorcisms. What is with the freaking exorcisms? What makes you qualified to perform an exorcism? And why do you think all children <laughs> act like they have evil inside them? She's it's called light. She's got the demon. Oh my God. <laughs> my sister was one of those. If anybody had a demon at some point, <laughs> she was 17 months younger than me and she did weird stuff. <laughs> Climb on top of stuff and jump off. I tried to save her and hold her arm. I pulled it out of socket. I got in trouble. Like, oh it was my just... lord! Yeah, no, I just that, it just, that was a it's demon. baffling to me that just regular developmental childhood behavior. We are like yep. it's the, it's the succubus inside of them. Yes. So Taggett then claims that at least twice between the ages of five and twelve, she's sexually molested. Okay. No indication of who or how or where, oh. but simply that um, perhaps this ha- was happening within. Um, the church that they were involved in. Why is this or such a family? Game? It's just, oh, it is. So in May of 1989, her mom discovers that Tackett was changing from a dress into jeans at school. Oh no, the horror! Horror. And after she confronts her about it that night, she attempts to strangle her daughter, Lori, over jeans. How dare you wear the devil's denim? Oh my. You cannot wear it. You must wear a flowery dress with what? The collar that's white, as Puritan as we can Yes, and keep your hair long and up and no makeup. I mean, again, I don't mean to be disrespectful to people's religious beliefs when it comes out of dressing, but I know from personal experience, a dress is way easier to pick up over your hips than pants are to pull down. Absolutely. And sometimes I prefer it that way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Just But but to be fair. Physical, to be physical with someone over that. But see, depending on how strict you are with your Old Testament um, religious beliefs, beating sense into children was appropriate and was the only way for them to learn. And this is not me being adverse to somebody spanking or using corporal punishment. I'm just saying that when you beat a child in the name of religion, you are not doing anything to help their brains. No, and this is the problem that a lot of people have with organized religion. And I want to make sure you're aware then, we, we are creating we're seeing how the perpetrators in this case are created and in this case she is uh this strangulation attempt occurs by her own mother uh, to lori mm. social workers do become involved oh and okay. tackett's appearance uh their pa- her parents actually agree um to cooperate to unannounced visits to ensure that the child abuse was not occurring so there's an investigation that occurs as long as she doesn't try to put on the yeah. denim then she's fine right. So Lori Tackett and her mom, they continue to come into periodic conflict throughout her childhood. You don't say, Megan. Right. Well, here's why. Weird that the strangulation didn't help them bond. At one point, um, 
Lori's mom goes over to Hope Rippy's house, who's the other gal in here who's friends with Lori, after she's learned that Hope Rippy's father bought them a Ouija board to play with at her house. Oh, no. And she demanded that the board be burnt and that the Rippy's house be exercised of demons. Oh, no. So how embarrassing. You are at your friend's house and your mom comes marching over because she's found out that you're playing with the Ouija board at your friend's house. How are they finding this shit out? They're not texting. Where where's the grapevine so strong in this town? You know, other kids. There's a lot of communication that happens, but I don't know what's going on in this town with this group of teenagers. But some of it's scary. Yeah, like I feel like I'm watching The Craft from 1990 at this point. And so, is it because her mom is actually connected to the Ouija board, and that's how she knows? Maybe. (laughs) But what happens often to people then who become very disenchanted with Christianity because of how it's shoved down their throat is that you can have people become very involved in the occult. Yeah, and that's not talking about those of you and us who are spiritual in nature who will do things that are very harmless, um, like you have your crystals and things like that. This is some really, really weird bad shit that happens because we don't use our powers for good sometimes when we're adolescents we use them for evil absolutely so she becomes very rebellious Lori does after her 15th birthday and becomes fascinated with the occult okay and what she would do is attempt to impress her friends by pretending to be possessed by the spirit of deanna the vampire oh deanna she's a vampire like, where do we get that name i don't that's know that's the most random ass vampire name ever i don't know with it's with my luck it's probably something in a horror flick or something that they read that all yes. of these teenage girls from the 90s should have known about but i certainly didn't know about deanna them. the vampire and we're about the same age me and these girls all right so Lori is obsessed, as I indicated with this whole I'm I'm Deanna, the vampire thing. She's at least pretending to be possessed. Maybe she was possessed. Charnel, that would explain a lot. But at this point, Lori begins to engage in self-harm behavior, um, which we're familiar with. Teenage girls often use that as an expression, especially teenage girls that have experienced some type of significant abuse. In trauma. Mm-hmm. In trauma. And I will also tell you that there are occasions where it's attention-seeking behavior as well. Sure. And I don't want to minimize cutting um, for young girls, especially teenagers, but it does occur. So especially after early 1991 is when she starts engaging in really the self-harm behavior because she begins dating a girl who was involved in the practice. So her her occult type practices. Well, her parents discovered that she was self-mutilating and they checked her into a hospital on March 19th of 1991. She was prescribed an antidepressant and released, as would be typical, and two days later with her girlfriend and Tony Lawrence, who's going to come up here soon, Lori Tackett cuts her wrists so deeply that she has to be hospitalized. Oh, gosh. So we've gone from just a little bit of uh, self-mutilation, cutting behavior to feel in control to what really led to, if not a suicide attempt, uh, an accidental one. Oh, man. So after she gets treated for her wound, um, she gets admitted to the psych ward, as is appropriate, Mm -hmm. and she gets diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and also confesses that she's experienced hallucinations since she was a young child. Wow. And she ends up getting discharged on April 12th. So we have a really significant psychiatric diagnosis here Mm -hmm. for this young lady. She ends up dropping out of high school in September of 1991 because... She had been become obsessed with hurting people. Oh, no. That's not what you want to be obsessed with. It's not. And, in fact, she also told uh, someone, and I believe this may have occurred in, in prison, this was um, in the 1990s, The Deadliest Decade episode, that her destiny was to murder someone and spend the rest of her life in prison. 
Wow. So these are statements she's making. Yeah. Prior prior to yeah. Wow. Prior to actually taking one, part in doing one evidence. One thing shows evidence that she made that statement prior to this happening, and another statement that I read was that she said that after she was incarcerated and waiting for trial. But irrespective, she said it. Yeah. Knew that somehow it was her destiny to harm somebody or to take their life. Wow. She stayed, Lori stayed in Louisville in October 1991 to live with some friends then at this point. Um, and this is where she met um, Loveless. Mm-hmm. So she meets Melinda Loveless. They become friends in late November. And in December, um, Lori Tackett moves back to Madison on the promise that her dad would buy her a car. Oh. So you move back here, sweetie, and I'm going to buy you a car. Okay. And then at this point, she's still spending most of her time in Louisville, but also in New Albany. And by December, she's spending most of her time when she's in New Albany with with Loveless. She's basically become her her best friends. So these are these two girls I've just explained to you who have a significant amount of trauma, diagnosed mental illness, sexual abuse potentially for both of them, physical abuse for sure. These these are the two new best friends. That is terrifying. A recipe for disaster. It is absolutely. The, the term making of a murderer just kind of came into my head. And Doesn't then it? just for one, you know, individually, I could see how they could individually deviate, deviate from society's norms based on all of that, right? But then you put them together, that is scary. There are people out there who think that Lori Tackett is the scariest between the two of them. Sure. And I'll be honest with it and upfront with you right now. These two are considered the the ringleaders or at least the ones who are in control of the situation out of all four girls that I'm going to mention. I could see that. I could see that. Okay. Which brings me to Hope Rippy. Mm-hmm. And Hope's case is interesting at Charnel because she has connections to our area. Really? Yes. Okay. Hope Rippy was born in Madison, Indiana in June 9th, on June 9th in 1976. So she is one year older than I am. Mm-hmm. Her family life was better than Melinda's and Lori's, even though her parents had divorced when she was younger. They actually ended up reuniting later. Her father was an engineer at a power plant. So her parents, when they divorced in February of 1984, she moves with her mom and her siblings to Quincy, Michigan for three years. No shit. So Hope Rippy lived in Quincy for three years from um, 1984 to 1987 when she and when her parents got divorced. Wow. And she would have been going <laughs> um, to school here in Quincy, which is our neighboring school and, and a rival to, you know, my school where mm-hmm. I went. Um, and again, we're roughly the same age. Wow. She claimed that living with her family in Michigan was somewhat turbulent. Uh, her parents actually resumed their relationship in Madison in 1987. So this is when she goes back. So okay. she has spent three years here. She was impressionable. Um, follower? Is mm-hmm. that it? maybe a good term for it? Mm-hmm. And her dad actually felt that Lori Tackett was the bad influence on Hope. Okay. So Hope and Lori had become friends, and he was, like, not liking Miss Tackett, who's scary, really. Mm-hmm. She would be scary to pair. I feel like you and I would be able to pick up on something like this, too. Yes. Like, oh, I don't like this I'm girl. I'm loving the instincts so far from these more appropriate parents. Yep. So Hope is a follower. She suffers from low self-esteem. She's very susceptible to peer pressure in terms of not really a diagnosis, but an observation. Um, and 
people also believe, her family especially, that peer pressure is the reason that Hope then starts self-mutilating at age 15, like her friend Lori Tackett. Oh, gosh. So this is where I'm explaining to you that sometimes things uh, occur because for attention or Mm -hmm. to fit in, and her friend was a cutter. Yeah. Her friend was a cutter that ended up hospitalized because of how deeply she cut, and this self-mutilation is something she decided to engage in as well. And keep in mind, these are times where developmentally in the brain, what's happening is that we tend to how do I tactfully put this in layman's terms but our brain is learning and mimicking more from our peers than it does from adults we relate better to right so many people have looked at this as a fitting in thing Charnel yes Yes. And it, I mean, it truly, truly does happen. And it just becomes like this norm because as your brain develops, it's just, it's, it's already by nature programmed to look at other peers that look like you, that are the same age as you, right. To connect with them and to model your behavior out of, and it goes, it's a vacillating, it goes back and forth, but then it just before you know it, bad behaviors or what our society would deem bad behaviors or habits and things like that develop and they become so normal that they're not looking around and seeing that other peers are not doing these things. You have so hit the nail on the head and described this developing friendship with these young girls. So Hope, she'd actually been childhood friends with both Lori and and Tony Lawrence. So Lori Tackett and Tony Lawrence. Okay. She was not and did not know. She was not friends with um, Loveless okay. at this point. She All knew right. these two girls. So she reunites with them when they return to Madison. So think of it as being very young, probably like in kindergarten. She's friends with Lori and Tony. And then they move for a couple of years to Quincy, Michigan. And then when her parents get back together, they move back. And she resumes her friendship sure. with these two girls. That makes sense. But at this point, her parents, who are back together, are like, hmm, this isn't the same type of friendship that she had with these girls before. And they very much disapprove and believe that Lori Tackett is a bad influence and they are not proving of this friendship at this point. Mm -hmm. Tony Lawrence is the fourth girl. I have the least amount of information on her because, frankly, um, she... She didn't have terrible a terrible like childhood. Her mother doesn't appear to be in the picture. Okay. But her dad seems like he's a great dude, a, a stellar dude. So she's born in Madison on February 14th of 76. There's, these girls are all about the same age. Her father was a boilermaker. So but that's a metal fabricator, a metal worker of yeah. some kind. And he has a pretty good paying manufacturing job at the time. Um, she ends up, she is very close friends with Hope, Rippy, from childhood, as I indicated before. And the biggest thing is, since and I don't think seeing much about maternal involvement, she is abused by a relative at age nine. And I almost am wondering if it was something on mom's side that caused her to, because she obviously and clearly is living with dad. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know a lot about right, her. Right. So she is this early allegation that she was abused by a relative it doesn't say how she was abused okay just abused by a relative and then she ends up at age 14 being raped by a teenage boy okay what happened after that sexual assault is that the police just issued an order for the boy to stay away from her. oh my god and we see these cases in juvenile all the time because it's a and i hate this i'm gonna say it though he said she said yeah so you've got teenagers 
He's saying, oh, no, she wanted it. It was consensual. She's indicating she was raped. And unfortunately, those juvenile cases will often be handled that way. Right. And it does make you sick uh-huh. because right. they're equally forcible. Rape is forcible rape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, huge difference, in my opinion, and you can disagree with me if you like, in terms of sexual molestation, CSC cases. If you were a couple of years apart and engaged in consensual sex, even though you aren't legally old enough to do that, that is just a completely different situation than a traumatic rape. Yeah. The trauma is different. It is. It's illegal because it's by statute that it's illegal. Right. The other is illegal um, in, just in terms of the, the mens rea there, the intent that was involved in the physical violence, right. the sexual violence. And it is a, a violation of a human. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's much different than consensual. Correct. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there's not trauma involved in having consensual sex when you're too young to do so. Mm -hmm. And there are obviously going to be lasting effects as a result, maybe later in life. Yes. But completely different, as many of you, I I hope, would agree and concur between a violence, uh, non-consensual touching of any kind. Absolutely. Do you think that maybe some of these girls became friends because they trauma bonded? Wholeheartedly believe that. They shared their stories and they, except for Hope, I mean, she really, aside from her parents divorcing and moving away and then getting back together. Hope had the best childhood. Yeah. She wasn't, uh, at least there was no um, allegation that she received any type of physical or sexual abuse at a young age. And she simply started self-mutilating at age 15. Most people believe, including her family, that that was a result of her friendships. Tony goes into counseling after the incident, um, probably rightfully so. Her dad knows that she's been um, sexually assaulted and nothing really happens with it. And then um, after the incident, uh, she doesn't follow through. So she goes into counseling, but she doesn't follow through with the counseling. And I don't know if that's kind of a being raised by a single dad kind of thing. Sure. But could have been. Or just at the time, the time's. There was that stigma about being in therapy and counseling. There was. Well, as could be expected from a young girl, teenager who's sexually assaulted, she becomes promiscuous after that. Sure. Um, Probably not feeling that there's much value in her. So the one thing that you can do to make yourself feel better is to start having sex with whomever and and, and for whatever reason. She also begins to self-harm. Okay. The same as her two friends. Yeah. And she actually attempts suicide in the eighth grade. Oh, my God. So here we are with, with these girls. All right, I'm going to take you to the evening. Here we are, okay. of January 10th, 1992. Okay. 17-year-old Lori Tackett, this, she's from Madison. She's getting ready to go out for the night with friends. First, Lori picks up Hope, Rippy, who was 15 at the time, and Hope's best friend, Tony, who I've just explained to you, who was also 15. So Lori is the oldest. She is 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, we know that Melinda is 16. And then we have these two 15-year-old girls, Hope and Tony. They pile into Lori's car, and Lori asks Hope, did you tell her yet? And Hope's uh, about uh, Tony. And Hope says, no. And Tony asks what they're talking about, and Lori smiles and says, we're going to kill a little girl tonight. Oh, my God. So there's to set the scene. Lori stops then to pick up another friend one that hope and tony had never met so Lori tackett and hope and tony are friends and they're childhood friends and they have been but Lori has become friends with this 16 year old melinda loveless Loveless. and melinda is the friend who knows and has the connection to shanda and Uh to amanda heverin yep these other uh, two girls hope and tony have never met 
Melinda. They've never met Amanda. And they've certainly never met Shanda. Right. Oh, my gosh. So once the four girls are together in Lori's car, so they've picked up Melinda, who's, again, as I indicated, 16. Hope Rippy gets told to drive. Hope is 15. Mm -hmm. And she only had her learner's permit. But she drives the car to Jeffersonville as directed by Lori and Melinda. Remember, she's been described as being a huge follower. Right. Does what she's told. Right. Well, another account says Loveless, Melinda actually showed them a knife, telling them she was just going to scare Shanda Sharer with it. Okay. While Tackett, Rippy, and Lawrence had never met Sharer, Shanda, prior to that night, Tackett had already known of the plan to at least intimidate the 12-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. So Melinda Loveless explains to the two other girls that she disliked Shanda Share for being a copycat and for stealing her girlfriend. Okay, so she's a copycat because what she's decided to be a lesbian and she's stolen Amanda from her. And so she hates this 12-year-old, four years younger than her, and apparently she deserves to die or at least to be scared. And again, there's an account that she, they said she was just going to scare her. I'm going to tell you right now, I call complete bullshit. Absolutely. I think that the statement was correct when Lori Tackett picked up her two friends and said, we're going to kill a girl tonight. Yeah, definitely. That was, I believe, to be the plan from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So they pull up to this house in Jeffersonville, and Melinda tells Hope and Tony, who Shanda would not know, yeah. to go to the door and ask for Shanda. She tells them to tell Shanda that Amanda wanted to see her. Oh, no. Her and remember, she's being um, told that she can't see her by yes, her parents. Yes, by her parents. Yep. So Hope and Tony go to the door, and they ask for Shanda. The 12-year-old girl, young girl, sorry, choke up for a minute, <laughs> that opens the door explains, that's me, I'm Shanda. They tell Shanda that Amanda wants to see her and that she's really missed her. And Shanda seems to be very excited because remember, she's not having contact. Her parents won't let her have contact. And her mom had moved her to keep her away. Mm-hmm. She tells the girls to come back around midnight and tells them she will go with them. Shanda is staying with her dad at this point, okay? Mm-hmm. So mom knows a lot. Dad knows some of it. He is, she's staying with him in, in that particular spot. They live close to each other, her mom and dad do. So she says she's going to go with them, and she explains she's got to wait until her dad and stepmom go to sleep. Of course. Because she's going to sneak out. Yep. So the girls uh, go about their night, and they actually go to a punk rock concert in Louisville, Kentucky. They just drive over to Louisville, go to a punk rock concert um, to by the band Sunspring, which is at the Audubon Skate Park near Interstate 65. And that could have been where your night ended, girls. It could have been. It should have been. It was an innocent, In fact, just fun it got night. better for some of them because um, uh, uh, Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippy actually lost interest in the music and they went to the parking lot and started engaging in some sexual activities with two boys cool. in Lori Tackett's car. <laughs> right. Right. Hey, they're 15. Great they're, night. Absolutely. They're, uh, they're, exactly. It should have ended right it there. It should have. That should have been the normal teenage night right well, there. Eventually, remember these two, they're, they're along for the ride at this point. Right. They've been told we're going to kill a girl tonight. I guess you can decide now or, or think about it. You've, you've said this. You've gone and talked to this girl. But now you're at a party. Or you're, I'm sorry, at a concert. And you're partying with some boys. Do you really think that there's anything malicious that's going to happen at this point? Truly, I don't believe that they would think that that was really what was going to go down. I kind of feel like that, too. And, and people may disagree with us. But I think if you're talking about just culpability, they don't know. No. At least two of the girls involved here. Lori Tackett, who has picked them up, she's kind of a wild card anyway. Yeah, absolutely. She's crazy. Yeah. She's their friend, but she's nuts. I have four teenage boys, right? And I have seen time after time where they'll 
start off, they'll say, okay, I'm going over to so-and-so's. This is what we're doing. And then I get the text message of, oh, nope, change of plans. This is what we're doing. Kids are willy-nilly like that. So I can see, and I also just think as teenagers, how likely are you to believe that like, we're really going to kill a girl today? Right. You know, I mean, they might've been like red flags, like, (laughs) okay, but then just see where the night goes. But then at some point in time, they get to a point where they know that this really is the plan. And that's where I have now, now you're in trouble. There's now so you're many, a part of it. So many spots along this story mm-hmm. where you're going to be able to stop and say, is this the time that they knew? Mm-hmm. Should you have known? When do you stop it? What do you right. say? And that's why the psychology behind this case is so interesting and why people were followed this case so closely. Yes. How in the fuck does something like this happen with yep. these girls? Yep. Other than what? The perfect storm? The perfect right. storm. It's like the making of a hurricane. Kids with childhood trauma like this don't typically go out and murder people. No. Think of all of the no. people we know who have these diagnoses who've been sexually abused. They don't go out murdering mm-hmm. people. No. Mm-mm. They don't. Eventually, the um, other two girls, Lori and Melinda, come back to the car and they leave the concert venue and decide they're going to go to Shara's house. They're going to go to Shanda's house. So during the ride, as they're leaving Louisville and heading back um, over the river to Indiana, Melinda Loveless says that she couldn't wait to kill Cher. <sighs> However, apparently in the same breath or in the same conversation, she says, I'm just going to use the knife to frighten her. So I have two different so- stories in terms of, and this is probably likely based off of different confessions and interviews about what they believe was said in the car. Right. Okay. They are anyway, irrespective, they arrive at Shanda Shearer's house at 1230 a.m. And Tony, she refuses to retrieve Shanda. She okay. doesn't want to go get her. Okay. This so, might be like red flag where she's like, wait, wait, wait. I think at this point they've shown up at the house and Tony, who potentially is considered, potentially is considered the least culpable here is like, I don't like this anymore mm-hmm. because you just said you're going to kill her. Then you said you're going to threaten her. And now we're actually here. Right. Like, oh shit, it just got real. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Hope Rippy. And Tackett, Lori, end up going to the door. Okay. So remember, Melinda Loveless isn't going to go to the door because Shana would never have gone nope. if she knew that she was there nope. or in the car or anything. Nope. And why would she have gone with these girls she doesn't know? You guys, she's 12. Yes. And somebody just told her she gets to go see her girlfriend. Exactly. Who she's been kept from. Exactly. It was a terrible choice. It was a 12-year-old adolescent brain choice. Right. Underdeveloped brain Exactly. Just going from a want, not a place of logic. Exactly. So Loveless is hiding under a blanket in the backseat of the car, potentially with a knife. So here we have Tony saying, I'm not going to the door. Hope and Lori go up to get her without hesitation. No problem. Hope actually goes inside and helps Shanda pick out an outfit. to go see her girlfriend while Lori returns to the car Mm -hmm. and she tells Melinda that Hope was bringing Shanda and she actually helps Melinda to hide in the backseat under a blanket with this large butcher knife that she has. Hope and Shanda get into Lori's car then and they head towards a place um, known as the Witch's Castle, which is a burned out stoned, stone building in, in Madison. God. So she's in the car now, but she doesn't know that Melinda is in there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, and at this point, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that uh, 
I'll finish this in the second part. We're going to stop right now. Oh my God. I didn't even know that. <laughs> oh, so, Jesus. Well, I have a lot more to talk to you about. There is a, there's a lot here. I friend, it's not just the crime Charnel. It's, it's getting into the, the pleas and the whys of this. And yes. so I think it's a good stopping point from, from your perspective. So just so you guys know, with as heavily as this has been requested from our perspectives, um, I volleyed this one for sure to Megan, like immediately because (laughs) A, I I like your interpretation. You're going to go into the legalities of things. You went into the psychology of things, which I would have as well. But um, I just, this is one that just for some reason has always stuck with me and it's a trigger one for me. It's struggling for, it's, you know, so I appreciate, but I I have learned so much just in part one, even all the times that I've heard this. Um, So I appreciate you and the way that you have went through this so much more clear than than other things. And and I'll put this this out there too. Um, To those of you that have heard some different events or have some different opinions, I welcome those. So if you think that I um, am incorrect in how I'm explaining something, let me know. This case, again, was so highly covered and there's been so many different documentaries and podcasts and and, and I want to make sure that you're aware that a lot of what I based final decisions on for this case had to do with um, court either court transcripts or actual court hearings yeah. and what was stated in court. And that's not to mean that people don't lie. Oh, of course. If they don't right. lie in interviews and with testimony. But most of what I'm going to explain in the next part about the events that occur were pieced together and came out during interviews and interrogations with the actual perpetrators in this case. Because we all know Shana couldn't have a, a voice of her own at this point. Right. So right. we have to make one for her. Yep. Yep. Exactly. That's where we are with it. All right. Well, since you've done all that hard work, would yeah. you like me to bathe you? Oh my gosh, yes. Because I, in all of my research and me being laid up on the couch from my injury, I actually didn't look up anything funny and I should have. I am going to. This was actually sent to us by a lovely listener and um, I believe. and Oh, and it was in response to, if you're not a $10 a month Patreon where you get all the five bonus episodes a month plus the regular episodes shameless plug um <laughs> right and brain bath only episodes um this was after our funny headline uh brain bath episode that I this was sent to us and so this but this was a good one um a good one too so i'm going to read for you some funny headlines that have been in the news uh before i don't actually have a date on this one oh. but um, this, I just, I just felt bad for this one because how, it would be awful to lose your job this way, but this is the headline. Opera singer can't stop farting after surgery and loses job. Well, I'm assuming the surgery was on her lower. I would hell? imagine. I would imagine. Yep. And, and you know the power that it takes to sing opera? A lower voice box. Yeah. yeah because, <laughs> a lower voice box. Yeah, because when I do, because my grandma was an opera singer and my mom sings some too, and you really have to expand your lungs and give it your all. And I'm assuming air could escape from multiple origins. From all, all of the orifices <laughs> in the body, right? Girl, oh. you kill me. That's amazing. So... This other one says, Florida man kidnaps scientists to make his dog immortal. Oh, I understand. I, too, love my dogs to an unhealthy degree. If I have dogs in the past, that I would go have gone back and made them immortal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't Kidnapping know. Kidnapping a scientist I love my boys. make him do that? I love but. my boys right now, but I don't know if I would choose them. If you could only choose one dog. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's true. That's true. Think about it in this perspective. If you could only choose one person, what the hell are you showing me? That's his face. The man who kidnapped the scientist. He was thinking 
in his mugshot. Do you feel like this is the start of a, like a really bad Marvel uh, movie? Like, <laughs> oh my god, it does look like who's that. Who's he gonna turn into? Oh, not even Marvel. We're gonna go cheesier because I like Marvel. It's a DC. We're finding a new Batman villain, <laughs> the guy that kidnaps scientists to, bring, to make his dog to immortal. Make animals, and immortal. he's gonna come back as you know the Beagle Burglar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, this one is just, uh, says, the drunkest man on the news. Arrests aren't rare, but it is unusual for a policeman to have to, uh, to assist with the mugshot. What's so funny is the use of the word allegedly. It means that the news isn't totally convinced that this man was actually that drunk. Perhaps he was just milking it so that the police would um, help would have to help him. Maybe he thought if he acted like he was blackout drunk, the charges or whatever he did would be lesser. But the, the the headline is, Texas man is allegedly so drunk that cops have to hold his head up for a mugshot. And there it is. You oh can see two hands in the mugshot holding his forehead God. up. I'm just, can I just throw out here that I hope that they took him to the hospital to be checked out and released if first. Because you have to hold drunk. somebody's head mm-hmm. up for their mugshot. I would be concerned his about his eyes are so injury. wide open. I'm still laughing. I'm so sorry, you guys. I feel like his eyes are being held open because of the pressure on his forehead. It is. The it's like up. hand Botox. It is right there. It is hand Botox. <laughs> oh, that is gosh. what is happening. Let's see. This next one says, "Hungry photographer deletes all photos and leaves after being denied food at wedding." I've read that before. First of all, what a dick. Yeah. Second of all, they should have fed you. Like, why? Right. Come on, when man. It's part of your wedding cost that the people that you hire to be there the whole evening should be able to eat. And I think if I recall this case, they like told him, oh, no, we didn't pay for that. It's like $50 a plate. You're not eating. And we're paying yeah. you. Like, find your own food. So rightfully, you know what you should have done is said, like, well, you're getting billed for it anyway then. Right. 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 Exactly. Or it should be in your contract that you will eat. Oh, it was just, well, see, you can take it from the legal perspective. I always there. do. I'm I know. sorry. I know. I like that though. I like that. But he took a tool. He's like, fuck you and fuck you. I deleted all your wedding pictures and off I went. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Did you give him a warning? Well, like I'm going to delete all your pictures if you don't feed me. <laughs> can we consider maybe some medical reasons why we would need to eat? Right. Your sugar. Right. Sugar levels. Also if you're diabetic. Just, right. If you're, yeah. And some people are just plain I get hypoglycemic. Oh my God. That's the main reason. Who wants somebody angrily taking their photos? First no. of all, they're not going to get your good side. No, definitely not. I want my photographer to be so happy that they only take pictures from just above at a slight angle. Yes. Uh, so I look thinner. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And only from the left. Right. And right. Right. Exactly. No, they're going to actually do the ones that make your nose look gigantic. Make you and look like you have a big forehead. Add yep. Chins. The multiple chins. You're like, yes. I only have two. And why do I have five in here? Or it's only photos of unflattering pictures of you bent over or something. Correct. I mean, all those bad. I moments. mean, the flattering ones of me bent over. Feel free That's to take. That's fine. Yeah. With the lighting being good. Right. Yeah. You're like tasteful lighting. Right. My ass looks great in that picture. Oh, I know. I, I know we've said this one before, but I'm going to end on this one because it's still just so funny. Okay. Man with bizarre name was arrested. Bizow doo doo zippity bop 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 bop. I just spit. I, I just spit coffee. At, <laughs> it dripped down my lip. She was taking a drink <laughs> while I did that. Yeah. Bizow doo doo zippity bop 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 bop. Okay. Can you spell that for me? Uh, <laughs> 
B E, and then you have to hold my forehead up like the drunk guy because right. I've lost. It's all gone. It's all gone. Yep. Now. I love how he's just like, "This is this is my name." Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, and probably did it in a robot voice, like oh for sure. Bees out, do no zippity bop bop. I feel like you're telling me the names of people in one of your cult stories that you tell me. <laughs> Legit, for that's sure. how I feel for right sure. now. Yes. So there you have it. Well, I can't wait for part two. If you're a Patreon, you get to just jump right on over to part two. If you're not, you have to wait seven days for Megan's perspective on all of this and the legalities and stuff. But you'll you'll be fine. Absolutely. It's all right. Uh, But again, just again, shameless plug. If you're somebody that doesn't like to wait like me, you can always uh, throw that uh, money down and come on over and listen. Absolutely. And also then instantly get access to hundreds of bonus content that nobody other than the patreons get to hear for sure we've been doing this for three years you guys the amount of content that you have to binge when you join patreon is ridiculous (laughs) so all right till next time y'all we hope that you keep it curious and keep listening Bye -bye. bye bye